Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm your host, Steve Zafronis. How can project-based learning strategies help accelerate the learning of English language learners? What kind of community partnerships work best when implementing project-based learning in schools? How might teachers facilitate learning outside of the schools in ways that are mutually beneficial to students and community members? We discuss these issues and much more in our conversation with Donna M. Neary. Donna teaches high school social studies to English language learners in Louisville, Kentucky. She is part of a team that piloted the Accelerate to Graduate program, or A2G, at her school to help newcomer students graduate on time. Donna's role on the team is to teach U.S. history, world history, exploring civics, global issues, and humanities. Her concentration on the importance of field trips to student learning is firmly rooted in her experiences guiding tours for students and observing the impact that being in proximity to art, history, and authentic artifacts has on the development of students' critical thinking skills and cognition. I really enjoyed this conversation with Donna and was encouraged by her description of project-based learning that not only allows newcomers to finish their high school education, but also provides them with meaningful learning opportunities through authentic connections to our community. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's get started. Okay, welcome to Highest Aspirations, Donna. Uh, I'd love to start by having you tell us a little bit about your school's um, ELL newcomer population. We found out about you all through um, uh, an EdSurge article uh, about project-based learning and your particular population there. So could you tell us a little bit about um, what you're seeing in your school? Yes, great. Thanks so much for um, talking to us today. It's We're very excited about our program and uh, I work in the largest school district in, Jefferson, in uh, Jefferson County in Kentucky, the largest school district in Kentucky. Uh, we have over 106,000 kids in that one. It's very urban, suburban district. And our population of students are um, relocated immigrants and refugees for the most part. We are a big location for uh, people who are being brought from all over the world to find safety in a new life. And so the school that I work at, Iroquois High School, has about 500 students will be enrolled in the fall that are all considered English learners. Um, the newcomer portion of our school is going to be leaving our school and being consolidated with a district program. They're going to bring all the newcomers to one location. So in a year or two after they're there, they'll rejoin us at Iroquois. Great. And so the, the article that I referenced earlier really talks about some of the things that you and some colleagues are doing with project-based learning. So I'd love to, now that we kind of have a baseline of your school and what you're doing there, love to dive into what you see as some of the main benefits of project-based learning for uh, this group of students, which, as you mentioned, is a lot of newcomers and refugee students. Yeah, the um, I'm very fortunate to work with the team. Our English teacher is Brittany Sharpless, and our math teacher is Will Riley, and I'm the social studies and humanities teacher. Uh, we have worked together with a lot of support from the district and folks in our building as well to create um, a program called Accelerate to Graduate. It's the first one offered in our school district. 
and it's that we just finished with the first cohort. But the idea is that we have many students who are coming and through no fault of their own do not have time to finish high school because of their ages. They're between 18 and 21. And so we were looking at a way to accelerate their learning and really through um, evaluating how we would do that with a high quality of education and really bring them the skills that they needed and the content that they needed, project-based learning appeared to be the way to provide the content in a classroom setting, but then also really demand them to show their learning, to provide evidence of their learning through creating projects and programs and just a variety of uh, very tangible ways for them to show what they had learned. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I have these conversations with people about the different programs that they have for English language learners or newcomers and refugees. And one of the things that we frequently talk about here um, is that usually effective instructional practices for English language learners, or in this case, newcomers and students with interrupted formal education, are, are also effective for the wide population of students. I'm curious, I don't want to stray too far from the topic of English language learners and refugees and newcomers, but are you seeing that in this work? Is this something that that has kind of transferred over or come from the general population? Uh, absolutely, yes. What uh, we have not in our classroom worked um, to really any extent with the students and the, the, um, the mainstream students, the English speakers or others who aren't in the English learner program, but we are focusing on reading, writing, speaking, and listening. We're focusing on uh, academic language, proper English grammar, um, the, the skill set of compare and contrast, create a timeline. Um, how do you argue a point? How do you look at um, sort of seemingly divergent facts at some point and put them in some order and make some sense of that? So the things that we're teaching our students are nothing's new and you know it's not we haven't invented anything but what we're seeing is that we're looking at a very abbreviated timeline what must they have in their uh, wheelhouse before they leave us and those are skills that what research is showing and educators across the spectrum are saying is that's what kids they need to know how to do things create things and um, we're confident that this work that we're doing could scale out into mainstream populations. And actually our principal is really excited and talking to us about how we might begin to do that in the future. I'm really happy to hear that for a variety of reasons and not the least of which is uh, putting a spotlight on the programs um, that these particular students are involved in. Um, there is no, and we'll get into this, but there's no absence of rigor um, in the programs that you are, are putting forward and in the, in the experiences that these students are having. And so uh, it's kind of um, the reverse of what normally happens, which I think is great, looking at a program like this where you're forced to sort of accelerate the learning of these students. And so others looking at it and saying, hey, you know, how can we take take elements of this and bring it to our mainstream population? I really love that idea of looking at this specific population and these specific programs um, to, like you said, scale it out. And I think what what we all, any anyone who's working with um, English learners or um any kind of marginalized population, usually we, we wait to get things later, you know, they're pioneered or piloted somewhere else. And this was really, really forward thinking on the part of um, Eli Beardsley and Vicki Cummings, who are uh, integral in our success at Iroquois and saying, we need to start with this population. You know, these guys need to really have these skills. Um, and what we've seen is that good 
a good framework transcends language. So it's, it's not about the English language. It's really about who are they as learners and what can we expect of them? And really we push, push, pushed. And what we're seeing is that we've had great success with these kids. They've had success in the learning. Wonderful. Uh, and then that quote is great. A, a, a good uh, framework transcends English learning. Um, and and the, I've, I've heard that from a lot of other people that I've spoken with, and we're starting to see a fair amount of trends, um, all positive, uh, as we interview some different people. So I, I, I want to get into kind of the human aspect of this of this whole thing. Um, and, and when I say the human aspect, I'm not only talking about the students that you work with, but the outside community members, other teachers, etc., so I know that this kind of work um, it really requires uh, community partnerships to thrive. Could you give us an example of how you're working with outside organizations to make these programs tangible and real? Yeah, we've had some absolutely fantastic community partners. Our first partner was the Food Literacy Project. It's um, They have a community garden that's in walking distance to our school. It's called the Iroquois Farm. There's a heritage of truck gardening in, a, in every community in America, but Louisville particularly strong. And so this farm is walking distance and they, uh, it was really cool. We met and thought that this would be a great uh, collaboration. And over the course of that project, um, we've, we've helped them and they've helped us in very tangible ways. We've also partnered with the Speed Art Museum, an internationally known art museum and, um, they have been incredible and we have been just so blown away by how they have, once they've met our students, they came up with so many projects. One is um, an exhibition of students work from Iroquois in the main galleries of the museum, which was an amazing, uh, you know, it was right, right in the middle, right next to famous stuff. So the kids were pretty blown away about that. Uh, we also were really fortunate to get a grant from the Civil War Trust. We did a project on the um, the Civil War was kind of the focal point of our U.S. history last term. And so through this partnership and working with the National Park staff, our students were invited to present their work in the auditorium at the National Park. So it, it was amazing. So we've had incredible partners. And what we found is just like with our kids, when we step back and say, hey, let's partner, what can we do? What's the best thing we can do? Their ideas are far more exciting and um, so much more meaningful than anything we would have thought about sitting around in the classroom. So it's been amazing. It's amazing what happens when we as educators get out of our silos and sort of learn from <laughs> other people. And you, you got into this a little bit, but I'd love, I'd love to dive in a little bit more to so many people think about, you know, these students, um, we need to help them. What can we give them? But they're really assets um, to our community um, in, in so many ways. So what, what has been the general reaction of the organizations, the community organizations that you've partnered with? You, you mentioned the art museum. You mentioned the community gardens. H- has it been pretty consistently positive overall? Yes. And um, it I th- once uh, I'm completely biased and I accept that our students are fabulous. They're wonderful people. Uh, they're incredible learners. And we see that in the classroom. But when we go out and about and people come and visit us, the sheer quality of these people and we think about that they're complete assets to our community comes through to our community partners. 
And uh, right before school was out um, in May, we had a community meal at the garden and there were several adults standing around with just tears flowing because of the, the absolute power of the words that these sp- children, these students spoke, these adults really about how meaningful the partnerships were and what they've learned and how project-based learning has been really the path to their really unlocking their knowledge about everything they've learned at school. It, it's a very powerful um, reality when you see that these young people have so much to bring and all we need to do is ask them to show us what they have. I would say project-based learning is levels the playing field. If somebody has trouble with English, they may be brilliant at something, anything. You know, all everybody has their stroke of brilliance. But once you hand them a tool or ask them to do something, their brilliance came out in project-based learning because they had to, they could use their own language to think and study and make notes, but then they were forced, compelled to use English to make the project happen. And then English wasn't the end. It wasn't where they were getting to. It was the means to the end. How do I make this project? I need some help. The vocabulary that came out of these projects is unbelievable. We never would have planned to teach most of the words that came out in projects because I need this word. What does this mean? How do I communicate with you? The vocabulary alone was astounding when these kids, what, what words they needed to do their work are the words that we talked about. It was amazing. Yeah, and highly personalized, I imagine, to the students' particular interests, which uh, is going to help them as they pursue those interests further. And then, you know, the other thing that I take out of this, and, you know, I, I was a Spanish teacher for, for a long time and you delved in, in project-based learning, as, as many of us have. And I think one of the missing components um, for us was, well, you know, we have students showcasing their progress to the school community, but but you're, you're taking it a, a step further. And I think frankly, you're taking it where it's supposed to be, which is taking these projects out to the community, having the students present them not only for their own benefit, um, but for the benefit of others. And I, I want to I wanna talk a little bit. We talked um, a while back before, um, before getting together for this episode, and you, you told me a story about um, how people from very different backgrounds were collaborating on an outdoor oven in that community garden. And um, if you recall that story that you told me about, I believe it was Innocent, who was a part of that, who was a profiled also in the Ed Surge article. Could you could you go back and tell us that story? I think the audience would love to hear that about the oven and the interaction between those two very different groups of people. Yes, absolutely. And um, I guess I, I'm sure my teammates and I, we would all say that basically we often just stand back and marvel at what we're witnessing because these the students have taken the ball and run with it. They've based, they've believed us that we said this is a safe place of learning and they trust themselves and their knowledge, their previous knowledge. We were uh, at the Iroquois farm and we were there to build a mud and straw oven that's referred to as a cob oven, C-O-B. Um, and there were two incredible guys supervising the project and several of our students said they were familiar, always sort of like tap into, does anybody seen this before? Does anybody know about this? So many of our students are from agricultural and rural backgrounds. Uh, yes, they had, you know, some of them had, but there was a little bit of hesitancy. They were kind of like an innocent was kind of circling on the perimeter and some of the girls were kind of looking around. We, we had a sense that something, either they weren't interested in what was going on or 
they're so hyper aware of the relationship between adults and young people that it's it's usually an aspect of respect. And so at some point, uh, one of the girls said this, she was looking at the mortar. She said, this won't work. And we're like, oh, what's going on? And she said, it's too thin. And another girl stuck her hand elbow deep into the bucket and said, it won't work. Yeah, I agree. And so basically these guys were awesome. They were in charge of this building project and said, what do we do? How do we fix it? And so they just took the lead. They're elbow deep. They're working with this mortar. They're making it work. They're giving instructions to the other kids. And then innocent, um, sort of became the foreman. He was commenting on what they were doing and how they were going about it. So respectfully in my village, when we do something like this, what I have observed. um, And so our kids didn't take over the project. They became complete collaborators with the folks who were there and just joy erupted. Everybody had a job and they were instructing people what to do and go get this and go get that. And so at the end of pretty quick, uh, they were a very efficient work crew. They created this cob oven, which is a legacy for the community. Basically, it lasts, they last about six to eight years. And so our students, anytime they're in the vicinity or go to the garden, they'll know that they're, they had a role, a very important role in providing this place for people to cook in the neighborhood out of the garden. It was, it was just amazing to see i've said that word about 800 times i get that but it's the just the the power of giving somebody releasing control and letting the proper person take control of a project has been uh it's been really transcendent for the teachers we we don't have all the responsibility we're sharing it equally and that's been so so rewarding yeah, and I would contend it's one of the most difficult things to give up um, for sort of traditional-based um, teaching, right? Giving up that control um, can make you feel vulnerable, and I imagine it can make you feel vulnerable if you're uh, somebody who's leading a project at that garden. And I can just, I can just imagine that scene and, and the image that I have. Like, I, I don't want that image to change because I just see people who would, in, in on a normal day, not really be communicating or collaborating with one another, collaborating in this in this wonderful way that that lasts more than just the moment. Like you said, there's the legacy of an actual thing that was built by people. But I imagine that the people who were in charge of the project um, must have walked away from that experience thinking, wow, what what an amazing asset these people are to our community. Maybe they felt that way before. Maybe they didn't. But to have that um, that assertion you know, come to just come to life in that moment must have been really powerful. It truly was. And um, just to your point of, you know, how it's, it is scary to let go of the power of the classroom and it can be really messy. That's what we just said. We were really, people would say, can we visit? We'd love to visit. We'd say, yeah, it's really messy. We, we kind of don't know, is someone going to jump up and are we going to switch gears because somebody brought up something we need to talk about and we've, we haven't covered that yet or so just be prepared that we're not in control per se. We had incredible um, classroom behavior with no, absolutely. You know, people were just there to learn. There was nothing we had to contend with in terms of negative behaviors, but we didn't kind of know what was going to happen every day. And what we realized is that previously in uh, teaching, 
my students were an audience. And in this method of teaching, uh, gen- most of the time I was the audience. I-, I was just standing on the periphery. We acted more as coaches and resources. We put our students firmly in the middle, and it is really hard sometimes to do that. But uh, as they started to trust and believe that we really did want them right in the middle, and we wanted their decisions. One of the things that Brittany, the English teacher, would say is uh, somebody would ask her a question, and her mantra was, ask three and then me. So go check with three of your peers. If nobody knows, then I probably didn't tell you, so then come back. So they just stopped asking us silly little ticky-tack stuff like, what page are we on? Or, you know, stuff like that that kids randomly shout out. They they handled business among themselves. And then they would sort of collaborate and they'd say, hey, uh, we've all talked and no one understands this part. Can you go over it again? So it was really, really, really targeted learning for them, personalized learning but also sort of like this group targeted learning. Sure. And I think that's a testament to you for, you know, and, and your colleagues and, and, and school leadership as well for, for giving you and the students the agency to be able to rely on one another to solve those small problems. And when something surges uh, that, that's larger because no one can answer it, then you're really getting to the most important questions. And, and that, that leads me to a question that I had just when you were talking before. I'm thinking about my own experience as a teacher, which I frequently do when I hear about these amazing um, uh, examples of, of project-based learning, especially. And that is that, you know, when you relinquish control like that, um, or that, I guess the typical control that you usually have the the passerby, the person that's walking by your room, who may be an administrator or a school leader or a colleague or whatever, sometimes can look into the room and say, Oh my, what is happening in there? Like, it just seems like not even controlled chaos. It just seems like chaos. So my point there is it takes a very strong um, leader um, and someone who really understands the beauty that happens with that kind of chaos uh, to, to really push that forward. So how has school leadership um, sort of allowed you to do this? What's been the formula there? You know, that's been really interesting because we all were really um, on pretty equal footing of not knowing if this would work or uh, if this was going to be a, a good approach for this specific population of kids that we're working with, these older kids. But um, our principal and um, the APs, the assistant principals, the the agreement was we've got to do something to help these kids. And the principal said, I'm not going to come in there and tell you guys what to do because, frankly, we're all figuring this out. And so he, he trusted us to devise a plan, um, you know, pretty regular check-ins by our assistant principal and a resource teacher who was, um, who is in our school uh, and who's going to be joining our teaching team next year. But we were allowed to make mistakes in terms of like, oh, whoa, that didn't work or wow, nobody was interested in that topic. Uh, You know, there you hear crickets in the classroom. You're like, okay, move on. We'll, We'll do something else. But we, we, we believed them. It was almost like our students. We believed our leadership when they said, we want you to do something really different. And we kept pushing to do that. And we were so energized. People would come in. And as you said, it was really loud. It was always really loud in there. Um, and, but it was controlled chaos. They, they were managing their business, what they needed to do. We had several groups based on sort of where they were. But one of the comments that came uh, probably after Christmas, you know, sort of like when we came back after the Christmas break or the winter break 
was that it was really loud. But then, uh, you know, you'd see somebody kind of looking around and our reaction was, oh, yeah, it's it's kind of messy. It's really loud. Just kind of, you know, being a little bit uh, protective. And they'd say, yeah, but they're all speaking English. I'm only hearing English. And so what we realized is the way that project based learning, we had teams and groups, man, we changed those groups all the time. Nobody was going to get comfortable with who was the best artist and who was the best speaker. And so we changed, changed, changed. She had to work with everybody. If you said, I don't like this person, we'd say, we don't care. Move on. You got, you know, this is the real world. Move on. And so what happened is they, they just instinctively moved to English as the academic language in our classroom. Sure. There'd be a little Arabic conversation or Spanish conversation where you're going to sit at lunchtime. Um, but we found that through this really rigorous, uh, it, it, and what I mean by that in this context is there was no time to breathe. You got to move, move, move. You got work to do. We Are you going to graduate? Okay, let's go. It was kind of tough love in a way, but they appreciated that. And that brought us to English 98% of the time. So their social language, as well as their academic language, were incredibly enhanced by this opportunity. Yeah, I think that's great being able to take something out of that chaos and harness it in some way. So I want to talk about this idea, this this idea and this buzzword of rigor. Um, if I'm being honest, I'm I'm not really sure how I feel about the term. I I my 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 best definition and and the positive definition of the term is making sure that all students are challenged adequately in education. And if that's the ter- that's the definition, I, I think that's great. But um, do you think that that project-based learning has the ability and the potential to maintain that adequate rigor to really bring it forth in, in these types of students? When I think about rigor, particularly in reference to the students that we work with in Accelerate to Graduate, we think about that in a very personalized way. So Our students uh, each come to us with specific credits they need to earn. Some have different ones than others. There are some that are grouped together and we can work as a group. But it's in my estimation and observing these kids and, you know, reading the research, it's really about those students getting what they need to succeed. And are we pushing that student and this student? And I think, um, as a teacher in a classroom with 30 kids and the period changes in 30 kids, uh, there's a certain amount of rigor we can expect, but you have to modulate that. You have to really look at like, where is the most of the group? Where can we land? How can we make sure everybody gets what they need in this type of a setting with project-based learning? We can, we've gotten to know our students incredibly well. We've created relationships with all of them and we're, we travel as a cohort. So we, we spent so much time together, but what's rigorous for Seattle may not be the same rigor for innocent or for Janine or for uh, Zawadi. So how do we make sure that each student is being pushed and get what they need in order to get to the highest place we can get them to? You know, we have them for such a finite amount of time. Uh, education is so sort of uh, segmented, you know, like junior year, senior year, et cetera. We looked at this as whole learners. So we've got you for this amount of time. We've got to race through and make sure you have this knowledge. What do you need? What's the most rigorous way we can push you? And what was absolutely beautiful about that in our classroom is, you know, kids know each other. People know each other. 
we instinctively know what others are capable of and sort of who's the smartest and who's the whatever you want to say superlatives. They were so appreciative. Uh, nobody said, hey, I'm doing this and he's doing that and that's not fair. They understood that they were being pushed to the level that they could get to and they had confidence in the teaching staff and in, uh, in themselves that we knew where they needed to go and what work they needed to do. And pushing them was our job to, to enhance the rigor and to create that challenge that would get them the result that they needed. So I think that we were, I know we were very honest with them as a group and with them individually. Uh, and we saw great growth across the board. Uh, one of the reasons why it was, it was so rigorous is they had to work with teams and we worked very hard to mix up the teams. And so every level was represented and everybody had to work with everybody in the group. And that elevated the rigor for those who were a little more challenged and had had less education. And it elevated the rigor for those who were excelling because they then had to really process and become part of the teaching staff and really make sure their team was functioning at a high level. So it, it was um, a very rewarding for both the teaching staff and the students, I think I would say. I think they would say that. Yeah, and I take a few things out of there. The idea of personalization, getting to know your students really well so that you can push them adequately. Um, I, I actually, this is, I got an email from, uh, from a student of mine, um, just yesterday and uh, I've been out of the classroom for about three years and you know, she was thanking me for the experiences that, uh, that, that, that I had given her in, in her classes, which is always wonderful as a teacher to hear. And I bring this up because she is going to be a teacher and she said, you know, I, I aspire to teach the way that you taught, um, others and to, to, to teach kids that the content that I want to teach them. And one of the things I said, I said, uh, this is wonderful. Thank you so much for, for getting back to me. But if you'll indulge me, I'll give you a piece of advice. And that's, you know, your students are going to get to know you as a person before they get to know you as a teacher. And if they respect you as a person, um, and if you respect them as people, um, then that's, that's really half of it right there. And it sounds like from what you're telling me, you have been able to accomplish that. And the more that I speak with people about working with particularly these students, with interrupted formal education or students who have experienced some sort of trauma, um, getting to know them and gaining their trust is so, uh, so crucial. And again, it sounds like you've done that really well. So I'm going to like add a little bit to that question, because I think that this is something that people would love to hear, um, to hear you, uh, attempt to answer. And that is, um, how do you get the students to the point where you're pushing them out of their comfort zone, but you're not pushing them so far that they disengage? Like, how do you figure where, where that line is and constantly adjust? I know it's probably an unfair question, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Sure. And congratulations on your student. I think, I mean, what a great compliment to your work that when somebody says they want to be a teacher, you're like, oh, okay, I haven't completely screwed up. You know, with whatever we're doing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, I always tell people like my colleagues who are, who are younger than me and, and, and everybody really, you know, if you have a teacher that you remember to just send a quick note, I mean, it means so much. We're straying off topic here, but I think it's a nice thing for people to know. Yeah. But, um, to the question about the, um, uh, getting them out of their comfort zone, we began the year really focused. The three teachers, Will, Brittany, and I just really said, we've got to get them first. We got to, we've got to really hit the ground running and they have to believe as much as we believe that they can do this. And so we began um, pretty concentrated five, seven days of um, 
really sort of reframing the culture of the classroom. So we come from all over the world and we've got all these languages, but your teachers speak English and English is our academic language. And that's what we're um, going to focus these lessons on. And um, this was true, but it was also sort of enhanced. We said, hey, listen, we just want to let you know this. You don't have to blab this all over the school, but you've been selected. You are our team. You you are the kids that this principal, Mr. Holbrook, said you will be the team that's going into A2G. So here's what that means. We have confidence that you're going to focus. You're going to put your phone down. You are going to work in teams. Uh, we've already asked all your teachers. You wouldn't be here if we hadn't asked your teachers if you could cut this, if you were going to be able to make it. And so we really worked on uh, very truthfully, but you know, we were just hoping it was really going to stay true that you are a special bunch of people. We are A2G. And so we really branded our class. Accelerate to Graduate uh, is the name of the program, but we shortened it to A with the number two G. And um, if we sort of started going down the rabbit hole or somebody was really kind of off track or people were starting to complain, and this was really early on, they, they got with the program pretty quickly, we'd say, hey, we're A2G. That's not who we are. Who are we? That's not what we do. And so it was really focused on creating a culture and an identity for that group. And um, we started getting invited to do stuff. And we'd say, we've just been invited to go to the food literacy farm and build an oven. Who does that? And they'd all in unison say, A2G. And so, you know, we would um, really, we really capitalized on the idea that we traveled as a cohort, we were together, and we had to create our own culture within all these vast multi, you know, cultures in order for this to succeed and for us to be able to stay together all day and work, you know, we had to have a strong relationship. And so we all felt really proud of, about that. And the kids immediately picked it up and they had a cheer and a chant and they would on Fridays, um, we'd end Friday. And this was Brittany Sharpless's um, introduction, but they took it and ran with it. Somebody would take the charge and somebody would say, we're strong. And everybody would say, we're strong. We're, we're fabulous. We're unbeatable. We've got this, you know, whatever you wanted to add. And then they would end with, we're A2G, we're A2G, we're A2G. And that's how we ended our Fridays. So it, it was just, and then we couldn't, we say, we can't wait to see you Monday. There was just so much excitement and energy that was created in our classroom. And uh, we basically said, we believe you, we trust you. It's safe here. Uh, we're learning as much as you are. We don't know all the answers. I don't have any idea how this is going to go, but you want to give it a shot. And the answer was always yes. And so that that was really a critical, critical piece of the success of these students, I think. Yeah. So, you, I mean, it sounds like you created a community. You created kind of a social contract of what um, it looked like to be in this kind of um, you almost branded it as kind of an elite group, which I think I think is fair to say that that in some ways um, it is. And I think that that's Crucial, and it gets to my point earlier about un, you know respecting each other as people before any um, real learning happens. So, I, before we kind of sum up here, I'd love to know what the future holds. You've just done this for the first year; it was kind of a pilot and a model. Um, what's happening for next year? How are you going to recreate it or scale it? What are the plans? Yeah, so we're very ha excited and happy. The principal um, has identified a second cohort for next year. So we're going to go forward sort of in the same model, just refining it. And then there's hopes that at some point in the future, we can scale it out into the school for all of our students, not just ESL students. 
Great. And I think there's just so much um, we could learn from this. And hopefully um, the audience that's listening here has, has come up with some ideas about how they might do something like this in the future. You've given us a lot to think about. With that, I want to transition to some um, some kind of personal and professional development questions. And the first question I'd like to ask people um, tends to be a really difficult question for some people, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, um, is there a particular book or resource that has had an impact on you, either professionally or personally, that you'd like to share with others? Yeah, and uh, I think all of these people have probably published, but really my first um, real introduction and immersion was through some training that I did uh, at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Tom Gusky and Dr. Carmen Coleman, um, I went to a training and just was blown away by this idea that the kids are in the center and that um, they talked about the work of Bob Lenz and the Buck Institute. And now I'm a huge uh, follower of the Buck Institute. Actually, I've got a personal goal to attend a Buck Institute um, training, and I'm sure that'll happen. I'm, you know, trying to figure out a way to make that happen. But the um, University of Kentucky also has Next Generation Leadership Academy that I had an opportunity to take advantage of. So it's um, the sort of thing, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, and these folks are right in Kentucky, but they're nationally recognized for the work that they're doing. Um, and the Buck Institute is a huge resource for us and the work of Bob Lins in secondary school. And actually, Deborah Short, her work in secondary schools and ESL and um, Linda Levine, I don't know if, if people aren't familiar with the go-to strategy. She worked with a team of folks. It's it's an incredible resource uh, for any age group and reading level. But uh, there's a new book that was put out by TESAW. It's actually just released at their conference, but it's called The Six Principles of um, for exemplary teaching of English learners. And it was comforting to see that many of the things that we're doing are in there, but also some new ideas uh, as well. So those are things that are supporting what I'm doing. And I read a lot of research, a lot of data. There's just so many people who are doing good work around everywhere on ESL. Yeah, absolutely. And you just added a few more to my list. Um, some some of those resources I hadn't heard of. The last one you mentioned um, from TESOL is one that I'm familiar with. And I'm familiar with some of the names you mentioned, of course, the Buck Institute. And what we'll do is we'll link um, all those resources on the condensed written version, which you can find on our ELL community on our website. So uh, last question, I'd love to find out more about our, how people might be able to find out more about your work. So where can people go to find out, besides the Ed Surge article that we'll link, to find out what you're doing and, and, and hopefully learn from it and maybe replicate it? Yeah, great. So um, I have um, also been a contributor. I've posted several blogs on the JCPS Forward blog site. And uh, we can link that as well. That's for educators within the school district that I work for. Um, and it's a way for teachers really to try out things and talk about research that's happening. And I've got some posts on there. I've also got a LinkedIn site. I would welcome anybody if you want to connect on LinkedIn. LinkedIn I office, often post uh, articles and things that I find interesting. And um, it's Donna, my middle initials, M. Neary. And uh, I have a Twitter handle. It's Donna M. Neary. Uh, so you can find me. I always follow people back if they follow me. So I post things that I find of interest, articles. Um, overwhelmingly, as you can imagine, it's uh, English learner stuff, but also just education in general. Well, that's great. I'm glad you mentioned uh, both uh, JCPS resource and your um, social media handles as well. Uh, Twitter, obviously, is a 
is a thriving community, especially in the ELL um, realm. So I'm sure people will be able to follow you and find some information there. And with that, I just want to thank you so much for joining us and telling us this just truly uh, inspirational story of what you've done. And, and um, hopefully our listeners will walk away with, with some inspiration and some ideas about how they, they can move forward with their program. So thank you so much, Don. Appreciate your time. I really appreciate it. And I think the big message, too, from our work is that working with a team of teachers, uh, if you can find people to collaborate in your building, that is going to just enhance all the work that you're doing as well. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.